The Climate Papers, the COP26 Universities Network podcast. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Climate Papers with me, Amanda Carpenter, and my co-host, Lisa Gilbert from the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment. In this series of podcasts, we bring together some of the best minds in the country to discuss the most important issues in the lead up to COP26. And today is no exception, is it, Elisa? No, certainly not. Today we'll be discussing climate finance, which is one of the key issues on the table for the COP26 negotiations. Uh, It's got enormous breadth to this topic, so we won't certainly not be able to cover it all in one session. But I think some of our listeners will have heard the big $100 billion figure, which is the figure of climate finance that was committed to during the Paris Agreement in 2015, discussions of delivery of that amount of climate finance, as well as increasing the level of ambition and commitment to climate finance will certainly be one of the discussions coming up at COP26. Uh, But there are lots and lots of related issues about where that finance goes, how effectively it, it is in sort of delivering our mitigation and adaptation and many other issues. So looking forward to discussing that today. Yeah, me too. We've got two extremely um, distinguished guests who are both co-authors of the most recent Climate Papers briefing. And it's my great pleasure to welcome them. It's um, Dr. Jessica Omkuti, who is a postdoctoral research associate with the Interdisciplinary Global Development Centre at the University of York, where her current research focuses on disaster resilience, exploring the linkages between existing data on vulnerability and community resilience to disasters. Welcome, Jessica. It's lovely to have you. Hello. Hi, Amanda. Hi, everyone. And our second guest, Dr. Harold Hoybaum, is a senior lecturer in global energy and climate policy at SOAS, Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy, and the deputy director and co-founder of the SOAS Centre for Sustainable Finance. His research interests include organisational change and innovation in global energy, climate and financial governance, climate and sustainable finance, decarbonisation of transport and resilient infrastructure. And I'm going to stop there because that would be the whole pod if I carried on. So, Harold, hello and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having me. So I, I wonder if perhaps we should start. You've just alluded, Alyssa, to how huge this topic is, but I wonder if perhaps we should start with some definitions. And climate finance is probably the best one to start with because it's a really broad term. But I wonder if I could ask our guests to both just define a little bit about what it means in the context of this conversation. There isn't really a fully agreed upon definition of climate finance. It depends on the context, depends on those providing it and where it's going. More generally, we speak of climate finance as the collection of public private and alternative sources of finance at the local, national, international level that are mobilized to address mitigation and adaptation goals. So in support of achieving reductions in CO2 emissions, that's the mitigation side of the puzzle, and allowing us to adapt to the consequences, the impacts of climate change, that's the adaptation piece. Jessica, I don't know if you've got anything to add in contextual terms. Um, yeah, um, and and I think um, as Harold mentioned, there's um, the the very fluid definition of, a, of of climate finance is it usually comes up mostly in developing country contexts because um, there's um, there's development finance finance that's used to um, to 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 develop um, communities and people and also pull them out of poverty and the distinction between development finance and climate finance is quite very very thin. And so we've seen a lot of efforts going to trying to make that distinction. 
And some people try to say that um, climate finance builds on to, um, should be additional to development finance and not, not be the same and not use the same, um, the same um, channels or address the same thing. Yeah, and I suppose that really comes to the heart of this, doesn't it? And the paper that you've both contributed to is that that real difficulty in both of those conflict, some seemingly conflicting issues of adaptation mitigation and the, the way that finance is perhaps being channeled towards one rather than the other. And perhaps what we're looking for is a fairer distribution between the two. Is that is that fair? I, I think so. Yeah. Um, I, one of the I think one, one of the issues that um, that have driven the, the paper is the, the bias in, in, in mitigation finance. So um, a lot of the finance that we've, that we've seen allocated so far is towards mitigating climate change, where the goal is to reduce emissions or to avoid emissions altogether. Um, but then there's been very little finance that has gone towards adaptation and building resilience. And in this case, basically it's um, supporting those who are affected by different climate change risks, such as um, sea level rise or droughts supporting them to respond and protect themselves from these climate change risks. Mm. Because, um, you know, the, the money that's gone to developing countries, I think you quote something like $78 billion in 2018 alone, of that 70% went to, to mitigation. I mean, but, but just going back a moment to the figure that, that um, Elisa was quoting at the very beginning of our pod, where is the money coming from, Harold? I mean, where is this funding actually coming from in order to get to the countries that need it? So maybe to take one step back first, which is the this imbalance between adaptation and mitigation, I think it's understandable historically because the best adaptation strategy is a, is a successful mitigation strategy. If we keep CO2 emissions or CO2 equivalent emissions low and we stay within a two degree or ideally 1.5 degree pathway as set out by the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, we won't have to invest as much in the future to adapt to the impacts of climate change. And there's no doubt that those impacts are already materializing today and it'll get worse as we move deeper into the 21st century. But we're going to try and avoid some of those very dramatic impacts that might come alongside an increase in those global average surface temperatures of three or four or five degrees. That must be one of the key goals and is one of the key goals of the convention process. So historically, the focus on mitigation is understandable. Now, as the impacts materialize much more around the world, adaptation has come into much sharper focus. The problem with this is that on the mitigation side, we can see uh, uh, a, a profit proposition. We can see returns on investment by uh, investing in uh, um, uh, wind farms or solar parks, for example, seeing that materialize uh, in investment in uh, mangroves or reforestation projects or very long times in which uh, those uh, benefits are actually accruing makes it a much more difficult proposition to mobilize uh, funding into, into adaptation. So much of the funding in adaptation has come from the public sector rather than the private sector. It's come through uh, bilateral aid has come through the multilateral development banks. It's come uh, also, of course, what countries do themselves uh, domestically, um, what governments might, might be investing. But what we really need, and that's one of the keys to unlocking this challenge and, uh, and coming to terms with climate change as a global uh, a threat, is, uh, is unlocking private finance and private investment into the trillions that we actually need to transform 
uh, our, our economies to uh, net zero by the middle of this century. So if you look at just uh, supply-side energy, the IPCC uh, uh, assessed that and, and uh, came up with a, a figure of up to $3.8 trillion annually uh, that need to be mobilized for us to achieve that transition to net, net zero by 2050. That doesn't include a whole lot of other sectors, they're just supply side energy. So when we then compare that to the 78 billion you've just named uh, to uh, developing countries uh, in the global south, much of which is mitigation rather than adaptation focus, it means we're only doing very, very little uh, compared to what we actually need to do. So private capital will have to be forthcoming and there are ways to do that and we can talk about that. But but this isn't an either or conversation, is it? I mean, we need to do the both because if we haven't got them, am I right in thinking that if we haven't got the mitigation, you know, all the adaptation in the world isn't going to help because there's things that we still can't stop. I mean, I think you say, you know, it, it's 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 too late to avoid the bad, but if we act now, we can avoid the ugly. I think misquoting you horribly, but but you know, so we so we need the both, don't we? It's just the strategy for keeping those in balance and un unlocking that second stream of finance. Yes, that's absolutely right. We need both, um, but governments don't have enough money to solve the climate emergency alone. So the trillions that do need to be mobilized have got to primarily come uh, from the private sector. And so the key to this is not having a policy here and there or putting some money into this pot or that one. It is realigning and transforming the global financial system. Nothing short of that will actually work in getting us to, to where we need to be. And this means mainstreaming sustainability, it means mainstreaming climate change across all financing operations, really. And that includes what governments do bilaterally. It includes, of course, what development banks do in their operations in developing countries. But it also needs to be what banks and investors and corporations do um, as, they, uh, as they mobilize that, that, that capital. Maybe I can pick up on something you, you said just there, which was that well, countries don't have enough money to do this. Um, that's important. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the difference between different countries. So we've got this climate finance pot. And, you know, so we, we've talked about the fact that more needs to go to adaptation, but still some needs to go to mitigation. Is the money that we have got reaching the countries that really need it most? Um the money is not reaching those countries that need it most. Um, there are really huge disparities. Um, and and there's been assessments that that show at a very international level that there's countries that are receiving much more finance than others. Um, and one of the reasons they've, um, they've, they've, they've found is that um, usually issues such as capacity to manage funds, um, um, you know, bilateral relations with donors determine where the money goes. But then there are countries that have been really left behind. Like, for example, countries in conflict, countries such as Somalia, um, I was looking at, a, I, was, I was reading a paper, um, I think yesterday, that showed that countries such as South Sudan are receiving less than 10% of what other countries in Africa are receiving in adaptation and mitigation finance. Not even mitigation finance, adaptation finance. Um, an example, another example is GCF financing, financing by the Green Climate Fund. There was an assessment, I think, last year by the Independent Evaluation Unit that showed that there are countries that have not received any adaptation finance by then, 
Um, I think by 2020, these countries that had not received any adaptation finance for the five years that the GCF had been in operation, even though those countries had, had accredited entities. That means that this, you know, there's people out there who are really the, 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 in the forefront of experiencing climate change impacts. People in Somalia experience um, droughts every year or every season. Um, and, and that means that the finance that's being allocated, the 78 billion that we had in 2018, did not reach those people. But then there's countries that are receiving much more, disproportionately much more finance. And I think a, lo a lot of the discussions that we hope to see at COP26 is kind of how do we even out the playing field? We know it's about vulnerability, but then how do we, how do we determine the vulnerability? But then how do we make sure that vulnerability matches the amount of financing that is actually um, reaching those places? Yeah, if I can just add to that, I think it's very important that we keep in mind that uh, the overwhelming majority of tracked climate finance globally, and um, a very good source for that is uh, the Climate Policy Initiative, which, which tracks these fl funding flows. Much of that finance remains within the global north and China and some of the large developing countries. There's a certain path dependency to it. If I've invested in an area in a country already and other donors are already there, then more money will flow. The least developed economies and those are those that are most vulnerable have not really received the, the, the kinds of funding that, that are required. And there are a number of reasons, many of which Jessica has just pointed to, which include institutional capacity, includes you know, having uh, um, uh, or meeting specific fiduciary standards, uh, having sufficient human resource support, for example, but also having sufficient data and information available as to the, the risks and opportunities on the ground, which will which is important for, for private investors to, to be putting money in. So there's a lot of reasons for this, and this is not an exclusive list, of course, but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it, the numbers speak a very clear picture. Some of those challenges you allude to um, about things like capacity, um, connections with donors and so on, presumably those challenges have manifested themselves in development finance, for example, which you mentioned earlier, Jessica. So do we, do we have a, a clue or some ideas that people have used already or already have on the table for trying to overcome some of those barriers? Or do you see the solutions elsewhere? Well, we try, to some extent, you can, you can borrow lessons from development finance. It depends on what you're dealing with. But my work has shown that when dealing with adaptation finance and mitigation finance, there's need to kind of think outside the box in a way to think about what other channels, what other ways can we use to reach these people. I mean, development finance has failed um, in, in most, in, for the last um, 50 or so years, development finance has failed miserably. Um, there's been development in developing countries, but it's not, it's not happened at the level that you would expect. Um, a lot of that finance has just, um, yeah, it's, it's not achieved the level of success that we would expect it to achieve. And we cannot use those lessons. We cannot use, we cannot, we cannot say that the, you know, whatever, whatever they did is will probably work for, for adaptation and mitigation finance. And I think that's what, um, you know, people who are thinking about governing climate finance need to think about how do we, what do we do, what are we doing wrong? And um, how much of this is based on our assumptions about development finance? 
I know that doesn't answer your question, though. No, it's fascinating. It was, yeah, great answer, actually. Can we learn from, from the failures, though, Jessica? If you say it hasn't worked over 50 years, can we identify why and avoid those mistakes in the future? Or is that too a simplistic of an approach? Um, people have been studying development finance for ages, um, and there's lessons that have been identified, for sure. Um, some of those have been acted on, some of those haven't. Um, there's international issues, um, there are national issues, there are local issues on development finance. I think it's kind of, um, and, and I cannot say that we need to do a stock take. I think there's stock takes out there. I think we need research to really start translating into policies. And that is very concrete policy actions resulting from research. And I know that's kind of pulling you, pulling us away from talking about, you know, ad, you know, adaptation and mitigation finance, but it's kind of just the broad issue of this research that has been done. We know what is wrong with adaptation finance and mitigation finance for now, and that is good enough to get us started. We know that we need capacities in these countries. We need capacities at the national, we need we need at the at the municipality and subnational levels and at the local levels. But then we need to have you know institutions, we need donors that are actually responsive to these research findings that would say, okay, fine, we've been doing this and we need to change it this way. We know that tracking of finance is not as um, is not as transparent. There's very limited accountability. There's really nothing new so far. So that's where we need you know, research to be translated into policy. Yeah. And I think in your paper, you, 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 you would really draw our attention to the fact that there's this disparity between the money going in at the top for big projects and actually not working its way down through the system for localized solutions, which is and presumably some of those local solutions in some of the in the developing countries are actually quite simple in the sense that they are not enormously complex to deliver, um, but would have extremely beneficial effects. So, so how do we get around that problem of it going in at a high level but not filtering down and those and equally those smaller projects not you know not being part of the um, of the framing when we're, when we're seeking finance, not part of the kind of accountability. I don't know what Sharon thinks about this, but I, I some of the work that I've done has shown that it's a, getting the money to reach the right levels is a combination of both bottom-up and top-down actions. And top-down is what we're saying. It's we're having international actors, we're having governments do, you know, um, say that we need these money to go there, but actually creating systems that try to make sure that that money goes there. But also there's need for more bottom-down demands for accountability where we have communities being aware that well there's 78 billion hanging around there and this 78 billion needs to reach us and they need to ask for those you know ask for that money and say that well you we, we expect that money to reach us and this is what we want you to do and so I'll, most of the time we talk about funding adaptation or funding mitigation and thinking about the local level we forget about the bottom-up push that can actually accelerate uh, accelerate action. And we expect that the top-down will just work by itself or things will just sort themselves up in the middle, which I think um, they maybe it will, but then I think it won't happen at the right pace that we need because we need we, we, we really need to react really fast. We need to do this as, as soon as possible. And, and I think we kind of need to incentivize these processes. There's a kind of capacity building issue, isn't there? I think Sorry, what's, re what's required as well is, and that's following on from what uh, Jessica has just said, is involving communities in the decision-making stages uh, when it comes to adaptation interventions, which oftentimes they are not. It's the easy uh, way forward to be working with your counterpart at the government level 
because that might be an established connection, but offering more direct access avenues and working with local communities. I know, you know, that's a challenge because um, we're asking for more. We're asking you to do more, to understand more broadly, to uh, delve deeper into these into these challenges rather than to just throw the money at, throw money at the problem. But that's what's going to have to be uh, happening if we are to be successful. Um, unfortunately, a lot of money goes to places where perhaps it doesn't have uh, the desired impact. Um, and making sure that there is effectiveness of investment is one of the keys to then mobilizing more. In fact, one of the things we don't really have today is enough information, is enough data on the impact that projects are actually having on the ground. Now, for some of these, they materialize over a longer period of time. We've just put the money in. We need to see over a number of years what impact they're having in terms of, yes, reducing emissions, but also building adaptive capacity, building greater resilience for local communities. That needs to be measured. And having that data and information available much more broadly and also granular data and information available can then contribute to mobilizing more private finance as well as more public finance because we want to invest in the kind of projects and the kind of interventions that work that are effective that deliver the results that we need to see. How do we balance out these two things? Which I, I think makes a, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. Obviously, we want data on how effective the finance is. But as you mentioned earlier on the conversation, Harold, some of the stuff we really understand how to do quite well, especially on the mitigation side. So constructing you know, financeable propositions that we expect to have the right impact is quite easy. On adaptation, though, um, it's actually already difficult to even just construct adaptation projects that we all we know are definitely going to work we we have a good idea but some of those will be experimental i expect so how can we balance out um the fact that we we need finance to go to these things but some of them might not deliver impact not because we didn't do all the right things with the finance but just because we're still not great actually at adaptation in general that's true. I would say that there's an increasing number of projects, however, that deliver dual benefits as well, or multiple benefits, not just adaptation, but also mitigation benefits, uh, not just environmental benefits, but uh, social benefits. So I think it's important to come to a perspective where we can appreciate and understand those various benefits better. And that will, in certain instances, require us to quantify them more effectively. I know that a lot of people will say that, well, we can't quantify everything. We can't put a dollar sign to everything, but that helps investors. It helps banks, corporations, you know, public sector as well to identify opportunities and to determine where to put uh, uh, scarce funds in the case of the public sector, that is. Um, so here, it's about not just looking at avoided losses, the kind of uh, losses that we're trying to work against by investing in adaptation and resilience building, but also in the economic opportunities that come with these investments, the job creation, the appreciation in uh, real estate, for example, you know, a, a number of different ways in which we could measure this. For example, when you invest in adaptation resilience building along, along coasts and areas that are threatened by, by storm floods, uh, the, the benefits that come environmentally and socially speaking. So there's an approach that, uh, you call uh, you know assessing the triple dividend of adaptation and resilience building, trying to visualize that it's not just about uh, reducing this uh, the potential loss that would come from a climate change impact, but really lifting up communities and building them stronger economically 
environmentally and socially speaking. The more we can do that, uh, I believe the more we're going to be able to unlock the funds necessary for adaptation. I wonder maybe if Jessica could touch a bit also on loss and damage, because you, you mentioned that there in your in your response. And I know that this is an issue that we're going to hear talked about around COP26 and relates to some of our understanding of, of the finance dimension. Um, so, so over the last few um, month or two, um, I've been working with um, with a group of people to think about how how can we unlock um, how do we how do we unlock negotiations on loss and damage um, at COP26? And we also thought about how do we do that for COP27? And so we recognize that we realize that COP26 and COP27 together create a very huge opportunity to accelerate the, the progress in negotiations on loss and damage. And as you said, loss and dam- no, financing for loss and damage is, is, is a very important, kind of a very big thing for this. And one thing is that um, how, how whatever progress is made will determine future action. It determines ambition by developing countries and small island developing states. Um, and and for, for loss and damage, before we get to how much, you know, before we start pulling apart the debate on um, who should finance loss and damage or how they should finance it, um, one of the things that needs to be done is A, have a very clear definition of what loss and damage is, a definition that is agreed by parties, and then B, go further and quantify what these loss and damages will be or how much they will cost. And then moving forward after that, once you have that, it will be possible to have a very um, a very productive conversation about who should fund loss and damage and how they should fund it. I think it's um, important from my perspective to think of loss and damage not just as an end in itself, but rather as a catalyst for thinking around more effective uh, adaptation interventions, resilience building and finance going into these measures in vulnerable developing countries. So I think there's a bit of a risk if we take loss and damage and money that could go into this fund and whether it'll actually materialize in future is, is, is to be seen. We've seen the struggles around getting the 100 billion uh, in climate finance annually and a lot of fanciful accounting uh, on that front. So there's a bit of a risk that uh, it becomes a very highly political and politicized uh, argument, which it already is, obviously. But, uh, but I think it could work very well in catalyzing and sharpening our thinking as to what's really required, what's the damage that's already occurred and is still to occur, especially in those countries that have very little adaptive capacity that are not resilient to external shocks. If a major flooding event happens in Germany or prolonged and deeper wildfire seasons in the United States, Western United States, as we have seen over the last few years, we have more adaptive capacity. We have money, we have know-how, we have technology to deal with it, to try and adapt and to not be caught out again next time. In those vulnerable countries, obviously, this capacity does not exist. So we need to build it up. We need to build greater resilience and mobilize funds in that way to channel our attention uh, more. So I, I see it more as a, as a, as a catalyst. Jessica, I'm, I'm intrigued as to what you know. You've been calling, you know, you're calling for a, a, a clear definition. But would you have a definition of, a, a, around loss and damage? If obviously that's something that we want to see negotiated and agreed at COP. But what would your definition be that would be workable that you think might be acceptable to the to the countries that are affected? So one of the reasons why I think, and I think a few other researchers have come to the same conclusion, is that 
pre more, the most recent discussions on loss and damage um, kind of focus on um, on averting, minimizing, and 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 is it responding or or, or managing losses and damages from climate change? But then um, my previous discussions with some of my colleagues have, far, have kind of led us to realize that averting um, the effects of climate change is mitigation. Um, minimizing is um, minimizing the effects of climate change is um, I think averting and minimizing is definitely adaptation and mitigation. While there's losses and damages, there's effects of climate change that are not covered by adaptation nor mitigation. There's people who've lost their languages. There's people who've lost their cultural um, lands or their cultural links or heritage that no matter how much you tell them to adapt, I don't think they'll get that back. And that's where loss and damage comes in. But then giving that very simple example of people who've lost their lands, that does not cover loss and damage because what about those people who do not live in, in places where they see level rise? And so having a very specific definition of loss and damage that does not overlap with adaptation and mitigation is quite important. And having that is, I don't think, I, I, I don't think I'm, I'm not a loss and damage expert. It's just a topic that I got into about a few months ago. But then having that definition will be very important to kind of draw a line around what exactly, what sort of loss and damages are we talking about? Because if we leave it like that, then we'll have, we'll have, as, as Harold mentioned, we'll have, um, calls for financing that still go towards adaptation and mitigation. And you still see this political pushback where it's saying that we already have finance for adaptation and mitigation, and that should cover loss and damage. And so having that very clear definition will help us quantify this. And once we've quantified how much cost we're talking about for, for, for loss and damage, then maybe we'll be able to kind of um, engage with, with the political struggles of asking who pays for these losses and damages. And are you hopeful that we might get such a definition or a conversation at COP? Well, started perhaps at 26 and finished at COP27. Do you think, are you hopeful for that? No. <laughs> I think, um, a, um, loss and damage is still, as, as, as you've, you can see, the, the COP agenda is, is, I think the COP26 agenda starts off with finance and then goes on to mitigation, I think. Um, and then loss and damage comes on the second week. And so there's, I don't think we'll get um, a very, very, I don't even think that's something that people are thinking about. I think at COP26, we'll have discussions on what happens to the Santiago network for loss and damage. Um, and hopefully by COP27, we'll have an operational network that um, as if, if, if some of the audience have been following the COP26 ministerial um, meetings, um, developing countries and small island developing states have been asking that the Santiago network be operationalized, that it does not, it, it, it should not continue to operate as a website. And maybe over the next COP or two, we'll have an operational network. And maybe that's where we begin conversations about what, what, what is loss and damage? Should we start narrowing this down? And what sort of technical capacity should we, should we be focusing on? I mean, thinking about COP26 in general and the climate finance agenda more generally for COP26, you know, what are you, what are you two hope, hoping you know, what would be your top two wishes of things that are discussed or, or ironed out there? Harold, have you got a top wish? Well, I've got, I've got too many. I, <laughs> I, I don't think they can all, you know, become a reality. I think we're in a, in a difficult situation when it comes to uh, COP26, where I, I fear that, um, you know, politically, 
a scene is being or stage is being prepared where a small outcome uh, could already be sold as you know big progress because we didn't have a cop last year now we're back on track and we've made a few commitments and that that's all all great and uh, and good fun and, and we move on to to next year's cop but actually we need a lot more fundamental change we need a lot more ambition than we are likely going to see i think the 100 billion goal the 100 billion dollars in climate finance is just one comparatively small piece of the puzzle if we somehow manage to piece this together those 100 billion as you know the prime minister seems to suggest he might be able to uh, then great uh, but we need to do so much more as we established earlier on in our conversation already so for example progress on getting a better understanding of what is needed to mobilize private finance into not just mitigation but adaptation uh, that would be great uh, discussing also something we haven't discussed yet discussing comprehensive debt relief for vulnerable countries to free up finance to invest in climate change adaptation and some mitigation measures would be a strong move there's things that happen in uh, uh, the negotiation halls and uh, outside the negotiations as well as outside the COP process but that influence it such as uh, climate risk disclosure work on taxonomies accounting frameworks all of these things are critical uh, in mobilizing uh, more finance not just in a developing country perspective globally speaking so we need to have progress on an awful lot of fronts. And I think uh, getting stuck in and making sure that uh, those goals that uh, uh, Jessica uh, has outlined earlier and others uh, have outlined aren't lost, I think is an important, is an important uh, um, marker of progress, really. And for me, the 100 billion goal is just uh, uh, um, is not really the big, the big thing. Uh, um, including the commitment by the United States to double uh, their uh, um, investment into those 100 billion by 2024, I believe it is. That's uh, that's a drop in the ocean, and we need a lot more than that. Great, thanks, Jessica. Yeah. Um, in addition to, I think I also agree with Harald about the the well his wish list. I would also add to that. Um, I mean, I would like to see countries make a commitment towards achieving the 100 billion but also being specific about how they'll do it because um commitments are easy to make um but then if you start out learning how you do it then they start becoming a bit more realistic and so i'd like to see countries commit to the 100 billion and actually start saying how they will achieve the 100 billion but on top of that it's i want a very i want countries to make commitments towards effective and effective 100 billion and increasing that effectiveness or achieving maximum effectiveness of finance kind of spreads out the responsibility for this finance. Because right now we're just saying, you know, developed countries, you know, send over the 100 billion. But then if we say that we need effective finance, then it kind of spreads out the responsibility. And we say that, well, um, civil society actors have a role towards making that in, in making that finance more effective. Governments, communities, even community-based organizations have a role towards making that finance more effective. And so it's, it, it makes this work much more inclusive, much more, um, you know, yeah, much more inclusive as opposed to right now where we're just placing the burden on one group of actors. And that means that if they don't do it, then the rest of the action that, you know, we, we, we have less chance of achieving, um, you know, net zero by 2050 um, and, and, and making sure that, um, that, that 
people who are more vulnerable are able to um, are able to build their resilience. I really like the way both of your answers actually have tied in the wider group of actors in this story. I mean, I think we see this across the piece, not just in climate finance, that we increasingly understand that all of these actors, be they regulators or communities or private sectors, small and large, all need to do something. And we actually all need to do that in tandem. We can't just wait for the person at the top to make the decision or wait for the person at the bottom to put up their hand and say they really care. Um, We actually need to do that all in tandem. Um, And I think that that kind of bringing the momentum along for me is kind of one of the important parts about COP. And really interesting to hear you bring that out in detail around climate finance. I think that's right. I think what's really interesting is that you know, historically, we've looked at this COP process as a country-driven process. It's the delegations that come together. It's governments that uh, agree on headline goals and then perhaps go back home to translate that into domestic legislative and executive action. Uh, whereas business communities, investors, banks, civil society, they were there at the COP. They were present, uh, but they didn't really, you know, uh, make the decisions in in the same way, perhaps at home uh, through some lobbying before the governments actually arrive at negotiations. But I think increasingly this shifting become a much broader discussion and realization that we need all of these to pull together. And especially the financial community needs to set itself some very clear targets and goals, not just over the long term, but the short term as well, to align with net zero, to align with the goals of the Paris Agreement and to mobilize the capital the capital needed. And here, you know, uh, it illustrates yet again that what we see in the news, which is uh, the commitment by the United States to put some more finance on the table or the prime minister, you know, talking to other heads of state and government, is not actually the only thing or the main thing that's needed. What's needed is looking at what uh, banks and financial supervisors and large corporations are doing to mobilize the kind of investment uh, we need. And are you encouraged at all, Harold, by what you see in those sectors? Because it does seem as if they're stepping up a little bit more um, to this debate and they're actually trying to take action, you know, not only about their own their own impacts as organisations, but also their responsibility to mobilise finance, to provide the right instruments through legal processes and things to make some of these commitments a reality. I am. I would say that um, I'm actually more encouraged today than I have been over many years now uh, in terms of what we see uh, that is happening. Because I I see, apart from uh, governments and uh, public sector setting out some rules and uh, regulations in terms of where we're going, I see the private sector and investors realizing opportunities uh, and um, creating and capturing value in this transition to a low or zero carbon future. So uh, whether that's through investments in renewables and low carbon tech, whether it's through nature-based solutions or a range of of other things, I think what we see is that there is a clear uh, demand now. We see that in in the flood of investment into sustainable funds and green bonds. So for example, the green, the global green bond market is set to grow to around 2 trillion euros by 2023, perhaps even sooner than that. Uh, And green bonds are now outperforming uh, their fossil fuel dirty dirty counterparts in many many instances. And sure, uh, the run on green is in part because investors 
want to be seen to do the right thing and want to be seen to align with ESG standards, with climate goals, with the sustainable development goals. But it also increasingly makes very good business sense to go green and to push for carbon. And that's really the key that's changed over the last few years. And this is why I'm hopeful that even though we'll take a few wrong turns still in the years to come, I fear, we are generally moving in the right direction and we're mobilizing what needs to be mobilized in the years to come. To end on a hopeful note, and we should probably draw this pod to a close, but but I, I think you're absolutely right. And I sense that there's a a movement across, you know, corporate institutions to 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 be doing the right thing and a demand, I hope, from from their employees and particularly their younger employees to be doing that. Um, and obviously all of the research and the innovation coming out of places like Grantham and Imperial and the other universities as part of this university network are absolutely key to helping to mobilize that and to inform those conversations and those debates. So a huge thank you to you both, to Jessica and, and Harold for being um, our guests today on this issue of uh, the climate papers. Um, and you know, we'll keep our fingers crossed though some of the more hopeful aspects of our conversation do materialize out of COP26, which is, Increasingly close, is it not, Alyssa? Yeah, just around the corner now. <laughs> just around the corner. So very huge thank you to both Jessica and Harold. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. Um, and uh, obviously to you, Elisa, as well for co-hosting and, and asking fantastic questions as always. Thank you. Um, you've been listening to The Climate Papers. Do subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts or via the website, COP Universities Network website or the Grantham Institute website. And I hope you can catch up on um, previous episodes in both of those places too. So thanks for listening and goodbye. The Climate Papers is brought to you by Planet Pod Productions and sponsored by the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London.